Hello and welcome to another episode of the Who Says That podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Crane. Before we get started tonight, um, I want to thank our sponsors. Um, and that's specifically these movement glasses. You've heard of these, Greg? Movement? No. Well, Movement has come far from being a crowdfunded company started by a bunch of kids working out of their living room. You can believe it. Uh, in the past year, they've introduced a, ho- a whole new line of watches. Watches so, or glasses? Watches and glasses. They started with glasses, I think, and now they're in watches. For collections for both men and women. So um, go and find your pair of Movement glasses today. These are actually a sponsor? No. I'm just I'm, I'm just practicing. <laughs> no, but they are a sponsor, and they've, you know... Um, they're actually 95 bucks online. It's a good price. Um, and the same glasses would retail for about four or 500 bucks. So it's a good Off, deal. Offline. In a store. I don't know who goes to a store anymore, like Neiman's or... I do. Do you? I prefer it. Than Amazon or dropping online? I hate it. Well, anyway, they've, they've, they've cut out the middleman. And uh, they've cut out the, middle, the middleman markup. So movement glasses. Like that mattress. All in so, branch. Exactly. Or MeUndies. Today's show is, welcome, is brought to you by MeUndies. You wearing your MeUndies, Greg? Tommy John. Tommy John. Yeah, That's yeah, right. Yeah. Anyway, never mind that. Today I have a, a super special guest. Another brother in the Levy family. My favorite brother, I think. Are most people's favorite brother. That's L- not true. Lesser known no. than most, but I am. If you talk to people, I am the, the most favorite. You know, when I talked to Candace about um, you and your brothers, I think she would agree that you were probably her. And listen, I don't want to get into any trouble, start any shit, but that's okay. Um, no, we love all. Of, uh, I love all my brothers-in-law equally, but Greg is very special, and so was Rich and Lawrence, lesser than special in our own way. Special in your own way, and then we're going to find out about how special you are today, tonight when we interview you, right? Because everybody wants to know about Greg Levy, the oldest, the eldest of the, of the Levy boys. Whatever happened to that Greg Levy? Whatever happened? Not. Who do you think asked about whatever happened to him? Virtually nobody. Nobody. I'm sure. The same people that are listening to this podcast. So it's like my mom, your mom. Ask, and they know what happened to Greg Levy because your mom and my mom see us on a regular basis. That's right. So outside of that, nobody No, does. that's not true. I, you know, a lot of people are going to be really interested to know because your story is actually very, very interesting. All jokes aside, um, I know Rich's was, was, was fascinating, but yours is also a different level of fascination, sort of a different track, um, and we can get into all that. So um, why don't we get started, right, Greg? So, so Greg, you're the oldest of the Levy brothers. You are Oldest of three. Oldest of three, and then, then came my wife, Candace. And you guys are 11 years apart? 11 years. Can you imagine? And being she a- is eight years younger than Lawrence, who's the younger brother. So it was one, two, three boys, each a year apart, let's say, and then Candace came. And do you remember when that was like, it being an 11-year-old and then your mom having an, another little was brother very, or sister? It was very exciting. It was. We thought she was going to be a boy. I mean, odd. In pro- fact, we were convinced she was going to be a boy. In fact, there was no way in the world, after three boys, that there was going to be a little girl. But you remember having those conversations? We with- had a name picked out for a boy. And you were, in, you were involved in picking the name for yeah, your we little brother? Were all, yes, we were all picked. I didn't yeah, know that. Absolutely. What was the name? Roger. Dirk. Dirk? No, Jonathan. Jonathan was the name. Oh, Yonatan. That'd be Yonatan. a nice name. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, yeah, I think after that point in time, you know, I, I was Gregory, very. You were like an very, established young boy. Very, yeah, very. Well, listen, we had Gregory, Richard, and Lawrence. Very Anglican names. Yeah, it is. And then by the time Candace was born, my mom wanted something more biblical. So that way, so Jonathan, Jonathan. And then when she was born and it ultimately was a girl, there was a major curveball. And we, I think it was a... Do you remember yeah. that moment that you found out it was a girl? Couldn't believe it. Like You, you can rec- yeah. recall that memory in your head? Yeah, I do. Where were you? Uh, I came home from school and my grandmother was... And she said, oh, Greg, wait till you hear the news. More or less. Mommy had a baby girl. Mommy had a baby girl. And did, you, did she tell you the name right away, or did they wait? How did, uh, how did that, that work? That part I don't remember. Rich probably remembers that kind of intricate detail. But you remember that your grandmother, yeah. your, on your mom's side or your dad's side? Uh, my mom's. My mom's. And that Rainy. must have been Rainy. very exciting. It was exciting. It was new. It was exciting. But, uh, you know, Candace tells a story that when she was born, your dad went out and bought a dog. 
that was how he sort of, I don't know if he was dealing with having a daughter or, or what, but. Let me think about that. See. We did get a dog relatively soon after. Candace tells the story like it was like the day of, like your dad was like, I'm going to go out and buy a dog for my boys. I'm sure he was, I'm sure he was a little bit more preoccupied than to go out and buy a dog that day. It was within a month or two, what, I would say. Do you remember the name that I thought? I think the, dog, the dog was, uh, it would have to have been Shogun. Shogun. The Bull Terrier. Unbelievable. Yeah. And this was way back in, in the old country, right? Back in the old country, back in South Africa. So Candace was born. I remember the, the guy we bought the dog from. Oh, so you do remember more than you're leading up. No, out. we went to get the dog. No, I don't remember the specific date, but it was, with, it was close. The guy we, we went to, and this was apartheid South Africa. This was 1986? Yes. Four, four, 1984. 84. 84. Um, apartheid South Africa. The guy we went to buy the dog from said, this dog will protect you from all the future prime ministers. Think about that. So I think you have to give a little context and why, why we have to think about that, because I don't think you're, my, my listeners understand. Your listeners need to think about it as well. The future prime ministers of South Africa... We needed protection from them. Okay. So at the time, though, it was... And it was apartheid. It was apartheid. So at the time, who was the prime minister in, in 84? That would have been... Uh, like de Klerk. P.D. No, P.W. Buta. Buta, okay. And he was bad. He was as bad as they come. And then after him came... After him came de, de Klerk. And then after him came... Mandela. And so the reference to... You got to beware of these upcoming prime ministers right. was in reference to... Uh, to clerk or Buta or not to clerk to Nelson Mandela. Mandela. Okay, so that's the kind of sentiment in the country you're right. dealing with. That's who we were dealing with. And in reference to him being a black man, correct? Because you were definitely in a in a segregated country, correct. which is to me still you know I've it's baffling, right? It's baffling that because I've yeah. been involved with your family for a long time, been married to your wife a long time, and to to think that you came from a place that had institutionalized segregation is just. And even to me, it's, even to me, looking back, it's baffling do you, do you, that that people could that people could do that. It reminds me of that that line in the song, uh, the Bruce Hornsby song, where he goes, uh, "Did you even think about it before you made these rules?" And that's just the way it, that's just the way it is. The way it is, and that's just the way it was. That's a good song. Um, I like that song. Yeah, and every time I hear that line, I kind of think about my childhood growing up. Did you? Because those are the rules we lived under. And yeah, I want to talk about that because yeah. because. You know, I, I certainly can't wrap my head around it. I know I said that in the last time I spoke with Rich about it, but you probably were a little bit older, so maybe you have an, sort of an idea of, of what you went through or what it was like specifically of living in that, in that era and, and coming from, from there and then to America where freedom right. was, was completely different. Yeah, I remember, I remember it vividly. Um, it was an intricate part of our childhood, and I moved to the U.S. when I was 14, so... You know, the first 14 years of my life, I grew up in Africa. Um, very proud to be South African. I still am proud to be a South African. Um, but growing up, there was always this black cloud over us uh, internationally. We always knew that we, we couldn't participate in the Olympics. We, when, we, when South African airways would fly from South Africa to Europe, we couldn't fly directly over Africa. They actually had to fly around really? the Horn of Africa. So, if, you know, 11-hour flight from Johannesburg to London was actually more like a 14, 15-hour flight. Um, so as a young kid, you always ask, why? Why Why can we not fly that way? And you asked your yeah, mom and dad, what, what is this all about? Or, or yeah, exactly. And, and they had to explain to us that we have a certain set of laws and, and rules in place here that the rest of the world doesn't like. They don't approve of us. And, and in, in school, though, was, was that part of the, the education? I say, listen, it was institutionalized, so we had, were mandated to teach you a segregation. We learned African history. We learned South African history, more or less from the way of the European settlers. So it was what was there before. Then we had European settlers arriving. Um, and then it was more of the... The, the, the history of South Africa through the lens of the white people sort of migrating into the country. Very sim the, the, what always amazes me also is that the, the history of the U.S. and the history of South Africa are very similar. How so? In that Europeans came, 
settled and then moved into the into the interior of the country. And in doing so... They had to deal with the natives. Colonized, dealt with the natives, and, um, you know, and, and so in, in many ways, it's, it's a very similar, similar history. And, um, this, you know, the, the amazing thing about South, South Africa also, because there's a very dark past about it, but you've got to give credit to guys like, to, specifically to Nelson Mandela, who came out of prison... Um, being a political prisoner for 27 years in hard labor. It wasn't white-collar camp. Okay? It was hard labor, breaking rocks for 27 years. And he came out, and he had the, the gumption, and he, had, and he had the recognition to say, we are going to do this peacefully. Yeah, you know, and, and that's amazing because, um, you know, you know, and I think about growing up my education. I didn't have, I didn't know much about South Africa, but, but I learned, you know, subsequent later in life um, that, it, you know, the country could have gone one or two ways. Right. Right. It could have been civil war and chaos. We were, we were, we, we were already living in the U.S., pretty new immigrants out here. We had a lot of family back there still. And we were a thousand percent convinced that there was going to be a civil war, some kind of bloodbath. Because um, how was Nelson Mandela portrayed to you um, as as a young kid at school? For Mandela example, Mandela was a terrorist. He was he not only was he a terrorist, he was the leader of a terrorist organization. And I remember, my, like within the first six months being here, I was at Hebrew school. I think it was Hebrew school, and the you know obviously being South Africa, the the discussion would always gravitate toward being South African and life in South Africa, and it wasn't necessarily with other kids, but more or less with the teachers. And the teachers would tell me about Nelson Mandela being a freedom fighter and a good guy. Huh. And I always knew that he, he was a bad guy. You know, I was always brought up to believe and educated that he was a bad guy. And, this, and by the way, this was a, coming from a very liberal, um, as liberal as it could be, education in South Africa. So even with that, you always knew that Mandela was a bad guy. And there were there were terrorist attacks that he had orchestrated and, sure. and whatnot, but at the end of the day, you know your actions speak louder than words. And when it came down to it, and he got out of jail, and he took and he was voted into um, the the prime minister or the president's sure you know took over the presidency. He made an effort, a one man effort, to make sure that that South Africa was not going to go the way that the world expected it to go. Right, the way the, re the rest of Africa seemed to and, fall into and chaos. And for that, exactly, and for that, he's, he will always be a hero. Yeah, you would think they gave him a, Nobel, always pri be a hero. Nobel Prize for that. So Exactly. Because I remember when he was released, I don't know why I remember that, but he, 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 you know, he was revered as this, as mm -hmm. this he, was, he loved, loved your neighbor and loved your fellow man, yeah. um, and he'd gone through hell, like you said, and, and united a country somehow that was so deeply divided in segregation. But... But I'll tell you one other interesting sure. aspect about the, the transition. Um, South Africa put in a, in a um, they, they put in, a, in, in a, a system. They called it the Truth and Reconciliation okay. system. And basically what that is, is they, they understood that there were people on both sides. There were people on the, on, the, on the black side, there were people on the white side that had committed terrible atrocities against each other, against people that of the same race that they thought were collaborators, terrible atrocities. And they said, if you come forward and you tell your story on what you did, then you will be granted clemency. Huh. But you need to tell your story and you need to come clean. And people did. People really? came forward and, and came clean. And you had white police officers that came forward and told them what they did in front of the victims' families. And likewise, you had, you know, black freedom fighters that had come forward that told how they had orchestrated attacks and the white families were there in the audience. And it was, it was, an, amazing, it was an amazing process and a real healing process that I think needs to be duplicate, duplicated with the, Europe, the world over. You know, that's interesting because to, it's the first I'm hearing of this. Yeah. So this, this must have happened. How old were you? Uh, this was in the mid nineties. Must have been the mid nineties. So, so. so you're here. So you have yeah. memories of watching it on television or listening yeah, to it on the radio. Yeah, you can see it on TV, and you can even YouTube the Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, Desmond Tutu was a big part of this uh, 
Amazing. process. All right. So it's worthwhile to kind of go back and look at some of those. So if you're really bored, you want to you want to scare you're yourself really about bored. about. But if you want to African see, history, if, if you want to see how you take a a completely adver- adversarial um, situation and work it out, and how does it work out, and how do we apply it to places like Ukraine, Russia, Israel, Palestine, um, you know, any other place that's 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 in these you know states Me versus of, you. states of conflict. Sure. Where, they, where it seems hopeless. There is one way to do it. You know, and that's and interesting, because that, you sort of came of age in that time, and I'm sure it's influenced you know, who you are today. And we can get in all that, because you know, so we can talk about the geopolitical impacts of, right. of apartheid, South Africa, but you know, uh, you know, people are glazing over, and I can hear, I can hear the you radios can hear turning off, or the podcasting. I could go listen to Joe Rogan. So um, <laughs> l- let's talk about you, because really, because we want to know about, about you. Me. It's about it's you. It's not about, about me. me. It's, it's about you. Um, so you come of age as a 14-year-old boy. Your parents come home one day. Your dad comes home from work and says, good news, we're moving to America. And, and you know, I'm sure you have a recollection of that, yep. of that specific moment or those feelings or the excitement or the being scared. How would you describe that, those times? Um, initially, very exciting. Uh, on the one hand, I was, like you say, old enough to recognize that South Africa was the, the the current state of apartheid was not going to be sustainable place not going to be a sustainable place to live long term uh people were leaving south africa in the droves thousands so you had friends that were leaving every, school every week there would be someone in your school that oh yeah they're out of here. They're, yeah they're leaving this family's leaving that family's leaving it would it would got to the point where it was every single week wow and and that was going on for a number of years and eventually it became out it was our turn so, so, but the, the immigration process, I assume, was a little bit easier, or maybe not, as compared to today. If you, if you know, I mean, because I'm thinking about immig- the immigration issues today has is, is become such a hot-button issue, yeah. and we don't, again, let's keep, try to keep it a little bit lighter than that. Look, I don't know. I was a kid. Um, I just give all credit to my parents, because they made it happen. And they were young. They were, they were younger than me at the time. I think my mom was in her late 20s. My dad was in his early 30s. They had four kids. A little um, yeah, three-year-old. A three, little three-year-old. And, uh, and they made it happen. And not only did they make it happen, but they made it happen to the point where no matter what kind of hardships they went through, and now looking back, I, even at my own experience, I understand the hardships. They never, they never let us feel like we were, like we were a bird, that there was a burden or anything like that. I know that my dad worked his ass off and my mom did everything to support him and made sure that we had everything we needed. And to, to that, you can only be eternally grateful. Yeah, you and, know, and they wrote the book. They wrote the book on how to do it successfully. Yeah, well, you know, when I, when I tell people about your family who, who ask, which is rare, you know, maybe one or two in my time I've known Candace, have actually asked about, you know, your family. I, I relay that it's sort of like the American dream, right? Come to the new country, you know, start a business, be successful, raise a family. It's unbelievable. It's right. really, really amazing. Um, and you shouldn't take it for granted. And, yeah, and I know no, you guys don't. We don't. Um, and hopefully your dad will come and sit in this chair and talk to, about, talk to, him, talk to me about it because that would be that the goal. He's stuff. the guy you got to ask. He's the guy. And listen, he said to me, oh, I don't think I could talk to you for that long, but the guy talks. You know, Candace said if, if you call him anytime, he'll answer the Just phone. Just don't cut him off. Just don't cut him off. I'm trying not to cut you off. So <laughs> that was your, you know, by the way, Rich said to me tonight, let Greg speak, don't cut him off. So I'm trying to let you sort of roll with it. But anyway. Okay. So, fourteen-year-old boy, you get on the airplane, pack up your stuff. Yeah. Does the dog come with? What do you do with the dog? No, the dogs, the dogs got sold. You had to say goodbye to the dog. Let's say goodbye to the dog. I, I don't remember. I think we sent one to live on a farm. One my uncle took. I'm not sure. The one, we, the one we put down. I remember we had a very old, like a poodle-looking dog. Her name was Scampy. Really. And she had cataracts. She would be walking into the lawn furniture. Uh, she had growths all over, her, and it was my job to take her to the vet to. See, how many dogs did you guys have? Because your, your dad is so not, I don't think he's so my interested dad. in dogs, but so your mom thing, is. We had, we had a lot of dogs, but in South Africa, we had good weather. So dogs were outdoor pets. Okay. Dogs never came in the house. So the issue my dad has with dogs is them being in the house. No, I've seen that. I relate to him on and that the, level. And, and there you go. So he's not against dogs. Just in the house on the furniture. It's, it's yeah, enough. There you go. Makes a big mess. So that's it. So you, you, you end up in Highland Park, Illinois. Of all the mm-hmm. places you could have landed... I mean, it must have been overjoyed. You're like, this is just like out of a movie. 
out of a John Hughes movie because it sort of is, right? We didn't know anything about John Hughes movies. We ended up in in Chicago because my dad found a company that he that he bought here, and this is where we came. He was actually in in the states for good part of eighteen months prior, looking at different companies. I think he even invested in a few that he came to run, and finally found one in in Chicago. And you found one in St. Louis. He was living in the Bronx for a while. Um, these were all ventures that he was kind of working, trying to just trying to establish a foothold in case. And so that was going to be my next question. So he sort of like knew that something yeah. was coming, and that yeah. they were going to. As you said, people were leaving in droves. So yeah, and actually, the reason we came was because I believe the only way that he could get this venture financed was if he came to run the company. So originally, he didn't want to come here. He, he didn't want to come. Like, he was going to buy this company set someone up as a manager and if we had to come in like the event of a civil war we had a place to come and a and a business to come to but he couldn't get it financed so i think rich mentioned in his discussion that it happened very quickly and that's basically why so and you mentioned civil war because another aspect of of south african life was conscription right yeah we don't have that in the states i think we should um, to some degree. To some degree. I think some sort of service. But again, I don't yeah. want to get into all that because nobody cares. Oh, we will. But we can. But certainly conscription was something you had to deal with as a teenager. And you were, you know, you're going to war. Going to- I, I was 14 at the time. Um, kids, when they finished high school, were drafted. If you had prospects of going to college, you could go to college. But then when you were finished college, you needed to go and do your service. So... Um, there was a lot of there was a lot of people that that um, I, I remember at least in when I was a first year in high school there what must have been 86 87 right before we left I did one year of high school in South Africa in South Africa so I was exposed to kids that were now graduating and needed to go to the army and f- at that time was like I said when apartheid was getting really bad and that is the time where um, there was a actually a big movement afoot to draft to dodge the draft, and kids were running away overseas and leaving the country, and or just hiding, and just to get out of arm, the army service. Unbelievable! Um, and, it, and and so the, I was exposed to that. I I recognized that was going on. You know, because because I can only think of it as in the context of the, of the '60s, right? Mm-hmm. People burning their draft cards, and it was a bad war in Vietnam. Nobody wanted to. Yeah send their kid over there to die. So, but certainly to experience it, you know, in Africa, as a white Jewish kid, I mean, right. it must have been, to me, it seemed it would be very Listen, traumatic or scary. All, all up, my, my, my dad was in the service, my uncles. Um, my uncle Rob, he's a guy you need to get on this because he's got stories. You think he would come talk to me? He should come and talk to you because there was, a, there was the Angolan Bush War which was against, which was against the Russians essentially. There was Cuban yeah, Richard, soldiers Richard in, in Angola, and South Africa was fighting against the Cuban. But they were, they went in there. They, they, it, it was a secret war, so that he used to literally take off his dog tags and go into the bush, uh, months at a time. Uh, and do what? What would you? Well, there was, I mean, combat situations. Russians. He, he was infantry. Well, they weren't Russians. They were Cubans on a, on behalf of the so Russians. Supporting Charlie's in the bush over there. Pretty much. I mean, it was, a, it was a whole South African Vietnam situation. Um, you know, we had, we had the Zimbabwean War. There were South African soldiers fighting against, you know, helping the, the Rhodesians. See, he, you, against, you mentioned I all mean, this there, stuff. There's it, all kinds of African It, it, it makes strife. my head spin because of yeah. all this strife. And to be, you know... I, because America's re- relatively insulated, insulated to an yeah. extent from from dealing with all that stuff, at least you know firsthand. But as a kid, to to witness that, I mean, it's to me, and I, I know I've said this maybe a hundred times, is that it would just be so traumatic. I don't think I could handle it. The thought of having to go fight in some African war, and maybe just I don't Listen, I, I don't have that feeling from South that, Africa. On, on on the one hand, probably yes, from this vantage point. But growing up there, that was your home. That was your that was what you were defending. So if, if there was any, any time that something came to this soil that you had to go and fight, you would probably have to go and fight. And it would be, it, you would feel different. You would look at it differently. That's how we looked at it there. It weren't like we were necessarily um, outsiders. We were, we were Africans. 
we were we were born in Africa. We sure. were raised in Africa. We were we were South Africans. We were Africans. We were the white tribe of Africa. That's what we that's what we used to call ourselves, and that's what everyone used to call us, the white tribe of Africa. Amazing. Um, Nelson Mandela called the whites that, and that's why he said this: these people are part of our community. They're not going anywhere. So it's amazing that he would say that. You yeah. know, include everybody. You know, exactly. Certainly can take some lessons from him today. I'll tell you an interesting story quickly. I was on a, in a cab, and I, whenever I get into a cab, I was trying to strike up conversation with the you cab know, driver. And you're as antisocial as I am, that's I was, especially if they're from Africa. I no, try and guess where they're you, from. Your sister has that same habit where she like talk to strangers and like. I don't talk to strangers, but, but cab drivers, the, especially if they're from Africa, right. I'll try and guess. And because when Candace does that, I'm like, oh, you know, I can't, I can't handle yeah. it. But so, anyway, so I got in the car. I could see the guy was definitely. An African, I, I could see from his name, probably Nigerian. So I started talking to him, and I told him I'm from Africa too. And he gave me this, mm, sure. And I told, and and then obviously they always guess, okay, South Africa, because that's where the whites of Africa are from. And and he goes, you're not African. And I said to him, my man, I was born in Africa. My father was born in Africa. My mother was born in Africa. My grandfather was born in Africa. My grandmothers were all born in Africa. And then I said to him, this is what got him. He said, when I was a kid, I, I fell riding my bike, and I scraped my arm. The skin was off. The blood was pouring everywhere. I said, the, the red dust of Africa is in my blood. Are you telling me I'm not African? And he bought that. Yeah. And he goes, you know what? Maybe you are African. And then he and said, that'll be $10, please. <laughs> Yeah, and I paid. I gave him a good tip. Give him a good tip. I was I always tip well. It's important to tip. So that's interesting, though, that you you yeah. know that you still feel that you have Africa as part of who you are in, you yeah, know, in your blood. So, you know, I don't know for me if, if how I feel about America. If I would you know if I was put in that situation to sort of reflect on being an American, I'd like to think that I am a patriot and would act that way. But again, this isn't about me because nobody right. really cares about me. But let's fast forward then, because you have an interesting story because you you left Africa, and part of the story was to avoid being in the army. No, none of that story was there. But you end up joining an army voluntarily, right? Yes. And we can talk about that if you're willing. I'll talk. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, during college, I went on a trip to Israel and uh, changed my life in more ways than one. How old were you? Well, it was, it was during college, freshman year of college. Okay, so what so I was, I think, 18 or 19 And this years was old. at Michigan State. I, was at, I went to Michigan State for a year. During high school, a lot of kids from, from Highland Park, Deerfield, North Shore. Get on, get on the microphone. because A lot of kids from Highland Park, Deerfield, North Shore were, uh, would take a summer trip and go to Israel. And I never went on that trip because I, I played, ended up playing football. And really? And that, a guy of your size, you played football? What a, guy, a guy of my size played football. I loved it. Uh, it's, it not, was, it's not as good as rugby. Uh, rugby is my first love. We could also talk about that, how you, you know, come from Africa, now you're going to play American football. Yeah. Like you're a big guy. Yeah, it was awesome. I don't think, um, maybe somebody cares about that, but I would rather hear more here about joining anyway, Israeli. Anyway, I, I never went to Israel. It was, you know, I, was, I grew up in a Zionist home. Um, I always loved Israel uh, from an early age. Always had an appreciation for it. Went to Jewish school, Jewish day school. Um, there was always a, some, there was always a inner calling. And after my freshman year in college, I went to Israel and I'd been here four years in the States, four in the years. States. And we, I was still trying to find myself. I was still trying to put on a, uh, American accent when I would speak to people and it was hard to do. I've never heard you do an American accent because I stopped because I was in Israel with a group of Americans and we came across a group of South Africans. And I said, hey, I'm South African too. Is that your American accent? More or less. That's, I'm out of practice. Yeah, you need to work on that. And they said, well, how come you're trying to speak like an American? And from that day on, I decided, fuck it. I, I will just speak like I normally speak. And I will own the fact that I'm, I have this accent. And if you can't understand me, that's on you. That's interesting because you ever explored that? Like when you came here, you tried to assimilate. I assume right. that's where that came from. Yeah, you wanted the, to just fit I'll, in. I'll tell you what. Talking to people, especially as a young, as as a little kid or um, a high schooler, 
and you're trying to have a conversation with somebody and you're really pouring your heart out and then say, wait, say that again. That sounded really cool the way you say it. And I'm like, you know, that's not what we're talking about here. It's not that. I'm telling you something here. You got, are you listening? So the conversation would yeah. be about, about you sent with your accent. Exactly. And you could never and I really. Hated, and I hated that. So I was trying to get rid of that um, aspect of things. And then I ran into these South Africans and they were like, if you're South African, you know, speak South African. I was like, damn straight. Um, so that was a pivotal moment in, pivotal. in, your, so, in your linguistic choices. Exactly. So for, at that point in time, exactly, I dropped the, you know, the pretending, the, the facade. And I said, all right, this is it. Get me as, you get me as I come. And here I am. So anyway, on that trip from Israel, year after year, I, I, I would go back. The next year I went back to lead the trip. And then I went back three times after the initial trip. The best part about this trip was called Shurashim. And here's a shout out to all the people that might be listening that went on Shurashim. There's nobody from Shurashim listening. But actually, I, I take that back. It's not true. We, I have a friend. I think you were his counselor on Shurashim. I you. probably, I, I might have been. I might have been. But anyway. anyway no, nobody really gives a shit about that. If he listens, he'll say, he'll confirm. Um, the, the coolest part about it was that there was... Uh, American kids that would come and we would join up with a group of Israeli kids and we would tour around the country. And there was also a group of American uh, counsel or counselors, leaders, madrichim, and there was Israelis. And the Israeli guys were right out of the army, very patriotic. And they would tell us, they would tell me stories. And this is, this, this germinated the seed that was inside of me that I always wanted to you know, this, this inner calling I spoke of earlier. So how old were you? So when I graduated college at the age of 23, I said to myself, I'm going to, I'm going to join the army. I was, not yet a South, I was not yet an American citizen. And I said to myself, I'll never go to the South African army. Mm. So, and I don't think I'm that dedicated toward the U.S. at this point. I want to go and be... I want to go and fight for my people. So what, what year was that? So that was 1997. 1996, I went over there. 1997, I, I joined. So I'm trying to think. There could have been an American war. You could have gone maybe to, to Iraq or Kuwait. Maybe the Kuwaiti war was, um, was, was, was burning. Was after Desert, Desert Shield, I think, the, the initial uh, Iraq war, um, which really was not really a you didn't feel major okay. conflict. Sure. I wasn't really yeah invested, invested in that. Now... Had this happened after 9-11, I don't know. If, uh, maybe I would have gone to the... Well, but then you American, would have been too old, and I think it would have been interesting. Yeah, but if I was at, this, at that same age, same point in, in my life, I might, have, I might have gone to the Marines. Who knows? I think they would have let you in. You passed the test. <laughs> Eventually. It would have been good for the, the physique, there I guess. But, um, I don't yeah. think I could have passed. <laughs> too short. They're like short guys. Short, short soldiers are good. It's too hard, guys. Come hard on. to shoot. Yeah. You know, yeah, close right. to the ground. You can get down quick. Fair enough. Um, yeah, so I ended up in the Israeli army, so, infantry. But that decision, though, because that's a, that's a pivotal decision to make. Yeah. You know, you, you leave one country, and part of it, like I said, part of it is to avoid going to a, joining an army. Right. And now you have to explain to your, you know, took, your parents, you come home, hey, mom, good news. I'm, I'm not going to the South African army. I'm going to the Israeli army. Yeah. You know, it, I think it was interesting from my parents' standpoint because on the one hand, they raised us to be very, very Zionistic. Very, very Zionist. And then when I said I want to go join the army, how can you say no? Okay? Um, I think they were probably shit scared. They, were prob they probably shit themselves. They probably thought, what the hell have we done? but we can't necessarily stop him. I did get a letter from one of my aunts and uncles who wrote me a very long letter to tell me that I'm tearing my parents apart and why would I put myself in, in uh, a situation where I can be used as cannon fodder for, uh, you know, in the military. Um, but you didn't, I mean, you didn't have those thoughts and say, Jesus, I no. understand the, the I, ramifications, at least personally. Of, that what, was going, that what was going through my mind at the time was that I don't want to look back on my life 10, 20, 30 years from now 
and say I had the chance to do it and I didn't do it. That's that was really the the only real thought that I can think of that I, that that I remember from the time. This is something I really want to do. This is something. This is how. This is the path I want to take. And I and if I if I, if I don't take this path, I will regret it for the rest of my life. I mean, that, so I that's, took the path. That's an incredible decision to make because also in the '90s in Israel, I mean, things were a little bit different than they are today in terms of bad things happening. It was inter- on a, on a there, was inter- there was intifadas. There was there was um, a lot of bus bombings. That was a getting. I mean, it doesn't really go on today. So I, maybe, it, it maybe doesn't go are. on, but it does. Um, this it, it happens in a different in a different way. You know, it morphs. That 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 um, the conflict morphs. So whenever they come up with something, a way of attack, the Israelis react, and then quiets down for a while and they'll come up with something else so if it's not bus bombings it's it's tractor they, they'll come into your tractors and and rampage down the road or the, or they'll careen cars into bus stops or uh, something like that where and whatever they do um they'll come up with something different but i just want to understand because you had a very interesting perspective you know coming from a country that could have gone into a horrible place but didn't and you lived through segregated country and into America and then to join a fight, you know, where people weren't getting along. And you mean, how, you know, what your worldview at that time, I know you say oh, it's, it was my calling, but yeah. as a 22 year old kid, you were, you had the, well, I, I, you again, were aware of that. I had this, I had this sense of Zionism. Um, I had a love for Israel. Uh, I had made a lot of good friends on, on Shurashim, Israeli friends that had been through the army that were my age that had done it. And I, and I, and I, the other thing I always remember is I think to myself, if they can do it and if they have to do it, then I should be able to do it. Then I, then I can do it too. Or then I should, I, I, I kind of owe it. You felt that as a, yeah. as a 22-year-old kid. And another, another key factor was part of the Shorashim experience um, was we, before the trip to Israel, before the Israel portion, there was always a one week where we would go to Poland. And we would see, we would tour the camps and we would tour the ghettos and you would see the life that, that came from. And that, that, that sense of never again, um, you know, what was I going to do to, what, how was I going to invest in that? What was going to be your role? In- what, is my, what is going to be my role? Yeah, that's amazing because I, I certainly didn't have, if I did have those thoughts, I mean, I sort of brushed them aside and said, well, listen, I'm an American. That, that's from 100 years ago. It right. really wasn't. It was part of modern history. And I remember there was a time when we were stationed in Lebanon, on the northern border. Yeah, but before that, because yeah. I, I, I know that story, and I want to I want to get that out. But I don't know that story. But okay. But so how you know how does that process work? You know, who, you call up the Israeli arms. Hey, I'm Greg Levy from South Africa. I'm I'm here to to fight in the war. You know, what is the process? How does that work? Um, I went through the Jewish agency. Um, I started here in Chicago. Went to the Jewish agency and. Told them I want to join the army. They told me I was nuts. I said, they were like, you're 23 years old. What, are you stupid? And I was like, yeah, kind of. And they said, how about you go and volunteer in a kibbutz? And so I said, okay, fine. So I went to, I, I joined up in a kibbutz. They had these programs called Ulpan, sure. which was really for immigrants, that you could go there and you would be immersed in the, the culture and you would learn and so I, I lived in a kibbutz called Sorah. Shout out uh, to Sorah. Yeah, right on. It's uh, outside of Jerusalem near Bet Shemesh. It's be- it was beautiful. Um, they said there's a it, there's a big South African community there. Uh, they play rugby, and um, just like home, just like home. And so it happens. Uh, so I went there. I I joined the Old Pine, and then that was so that was another step. So once I was there, I started talking to the people there. So I said, I want to join the army. Who do I need to talk to? And in Israel, it's, it's the squeaky wheel gets the oil, and they'll tell you no, 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 until they tell you yes. That's interesting. And, and eventually I got to a guy that, lived, that had a small little office in, the, in a broom closet in the Jewish agency building, and he's like, yeah, I'm the guy that gets uh, um, uh, uh, overseas volunteers into the army. And there was actually a guy. Well, and, just like in the movies. And exactly. So, but, you know, because we talked about language earlier and, and being able to speak, you know, you, 
with an American accent or a South African right. accent, but now you move to a country where I know everybody speaks English, but you had to learn Hebrew, right? And, and again, I think of me in my life, would I have been able to do that and sort of figure it out? I'd like to think that I could, but how did right. you handle that? So I had a good um, Hebrew vocabulary. I, I learned Hebrew from an early age. Uh, I always found it very difficult, by the way. But I had it a is good, difficult. I had a very pretty decent vocabulary. So I knew what things were. Like I knew what a table was. I knew what a light was. I knew what a camera was. The big issue is then actually learning to speak it and learning to think in it. And that you can only get in any language for that matter. You can only get by emerging, 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 emerging. We can, we can emerging. edit that out. So yeah, don't yeah. worry about it. You can only Stumble get by, by, by just going into the, into the culture and just living it. And eventually you get to the point. So I did that, that kibbutz ulpan. Uh, when I got to the army, the first three weeks was army ulpan because that's a whole different language. And they, you know, eventually you... And you weren't intimidated by all that. I mean, not only the pressure of, of, of being a soldier, right? Surviving basic training, but now it's not even in English. Right. right? That must have been a whole other level of, of pressure and confusion. There. You know, the thing was that they told us is, is if you don't understand, just ask. Just ask. And if you don't understand, if you don't understand the explanation... Ask again and ask again and just tell them. And eventually they explain it to you in a, in a five-year-old way. So that's how this, I assume that's how and they spoke it, to you every day. Craigie, like, <laughs> time to do push-ups. Right. <laughs> time for shooting practice. Exactly. So and eventually you learn. You learn the, you learn, you pick it up. But, you know, one thing that has always come hard for me is reading in Hebrew. I suck at it. And I remember once we, you know, the, we used to, when I was in Lebanon, we had to do these, um, little base meetings every single day where we would read this, uh, um, you know, somebody had to get up and read the mission of the base mm. or the outpost. And one day it was my turn, and, and then the sergeant basically got up and said to me, you know, what, what the hell, you read like a child. <laughs> so he made you stand up in front of the whole, the whole brigade? Yeah. Well, and one day, well, it wasn't the whole brigade, I think. It, we, we were in a small outpost okay. in, inside of Lebanon. So, you know, every day we had this, like, little briefing session, and you had to basically... So Just, once you're yeah. in the army, the process, right? Is there a basic training that you have to go yeah, through? Yeah, I went through uh, four months of basic training. Yeah, I think of it as Full Metal Jacket. You ever seen that movie? Ex the, the first half of that movie when the, yeah, very close at, to the, end of the, the end of the half, the guy goes crazy because the sergeant's such a jerk. Very close to that. I was in the Nachal Brigade. Um, we did our basic training outside of uh, between, between the town of Beersheba and Arad. It's the middle of the desert, northern Negev, and... Uh, started in August. It was hot as balls. It was, you've never felt heat like this ever. And it was hell. It was hell. Um, at the, August, September, October, November, we ended basic training. We started advanced training, still in the same area. They just moved us to a different base on the big... Uh, I mean, it was a big area, so there was a few little bases. Moved us to a different base, but then the weather started really getting cold. It started raining, and then ultimately we were getting frost, and then ultimately we were getting snow. And just the amount of torture that they could come up with. You know, they, they gave us when, they, when we finished basic training, and they knew we were going into the, the, the cold weather, so they gave us these, uh, like, beanie, the, the hats, and not like a real cool ski cap. It had, a, had our unit emblem on the front, the whole deal. Mm. We weren't allowed to cover our ears. We had to hold. We had to put them above our ears. And that was part of the training. That was. We're going to make the, you guys was, tough. We're going to freeze your asses off. That was part of the mindfuck. Even when we would go out and stand guard in the middle of the night, you could wear the hat, but not over your ears. That and, alone would be like, I'm out, I'm, I'm out of here. It's just, I'm not going to freeze. Do you understand for this. that? No, I don't. Like, Forget it. Right. So then, that, that's the kind of stuff that, that we would have to do. But that mental challenge excited you, and you were like, I can, if, if you, you were mentally tough I, and aware I need, that you I could get through it. I needed to do it. I, I proved to myself that I can take my body past the stage of physical exertion, like you, where you would think you were dead. There was, there's always a way you can get up. There's always a way you can get up and, and do more. And that... And that Basically sets the the mental and physical, um, the mental and physical, you know, your your mindset for anything that you do in life. Not only just 
the physical side, but also you know business side relationships. Wait, get close to that mic because now you, now you're getting some business stuff here. business relationships, anything like that. You can always do something more. There's there's always a little more you can squeeze out of yourself. See, that's amazing, and, and that that's what the army taught me. That's what it, that you had that fortitude. You're right. I think Rich called it testicular fortitude. You're right. He was giving his his drush, as you say, about about being an entrepreneur or just in life in general, that you can always try a little bit harder. Or there's always an extra step you could take. I was joke with the, with the woman. There was one night where it was freezing cold. They had made us march. It was wet. It was rainy. And one of the, one of the little camps in the, 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 the big area, was they had these little um, tents. I wasn't little. It was like a big tent. And they, the, our whole platoon was inside that tent sleeping. And it was this concrete floor. And it was was wet. It was damp, and my muscles started. Uh, you know, every muscle in my legs started cramping up, mm. cramping to the point where it was like I was immovable. I was stiff like crazy, and I needed to piss really, 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 really bad. It was the middle of the night. I was also dead tired. I didn't want to get up. I couldn't. My legs were in pain, and I needed to piss. I mean, uh, to me, it's like my worst nightmare. It's anyone's worst nightmare. And I can tell you, I always joke with a woman in my life. I know what it's like to be in labor. I know what it's like to be in labor. That was the worst pain. And how does she react to that? They don't believe it. Yeah, that's right. They, <laughs> they don't buy it. They don't buy it. Because at the end of the day, you just went and took a piss and you were fine, right? It was tough. It was tough. To, you survived to get through up, it, I survived through it. Like I said, there's always a little more that you can dig out of yourself. <laughs> and just getting up and going outside... You know, in the call, you had to get out of your sleeping bag. And Can you imagine yeah. having poor Greg? It's terrible. Terrible. So you make it through what they call basic training, right? And the, now you're going to get stationed. Or how does it work? You get, you get. So a, I know there's like other levels of, of, you know, the really tough guys go to a certain unit. There are, there is that. I was in the, in, I was in the general infantry unit. Okay, I was just happy to get into somewhere. The general infantry is no joke, but there are, there are elite units that. You have to test into. Did you try for any of those? I didn't try. I wasn't, you know, I, I probably could have tried. Um, they said if, if you can't take a piss in the middle of the night, then you probably, you, not for you. By the, time you. by the time you get to that point, you've already tried out and been cut from that elite unit long, long ago. Fair enough. Um, but the, the, there was, once you're in the unit, you're in the unit. So just advancing from basic training to advanced training. Then we ended up in the Golan Heights. We joined our, our brigade. And um, our brigade was stationed up in the, in the Golan. It was now February. What, what year, if you remember? This would have been 1998. Okay, so... So interestingly enough, because you, you brought it up, was Saddam was um, threatening to, to shoot uh, Scud missiles at Israel back at that time. He was, there was a, like a little bit of a flare-up. In the, in the beginning part of 1998. And during this time, do, you, do your parents ever say, Greg, you know, that's enough. You come, come home to America or we're safe and warm. I mean, we live in Hyde Park, but it's we warm. We didn't really have cell phones. I had a cell phone, but it wasn't like, a, like we have them today where the, this line of communication is so open. You know, we, I still used to communicate a lot to some of my friends by writing letters and postcards. So that was still 1998. And for the younger generation, you have to explain what writing and postcards are. Right. right? It's like makes us very ancient. Um, but I had a cell phone, and I would call my parents, you know, at, on a Friday night if I was doing guard duty late at night or something on a Friday night, I would call my parents, and they would all be sitting at Shabbat. And that was like a nice surprise call. And I would never necessarily tell them where I was, when I was in Lebanon, I don't think they ever knew that I was in Lebanon. Did you get specific orders that, you, hey, you can't tell anybody where you are? Was it that? I, th I think so. I, they did say that, but I, I wasn't convinced that the Israeli kids were adhering to it, so I didn't necessarily maybe, tell Maybe them you didn't that. understand the Hebrew. You asked for them to explain it in English. They would, they would never explain never. it in English, yeah. It's probably better that you couldn't understand right. Hebrew because you'd know where you were. But yeah, I would just say, yeah, we're, we're up in the north or we're, you know. So, you, you know, you cross over to Le into Lebanon, which yeah. is basically em enemy territory, right? right? Um, at the t it was em enemy territory, but the Israelis had secured a, like a security zone. Okay. Uh, like the first 20 kilometers inside of Lebanon was um, the secure, they called it the security zone. So we used to patrol that. We were inside of that zone. 
but there was still action. There was still action to a degree. We used to see a lot of, um, a lot of missiles going off in both directions. Um, we never got hit. I I thank God every single day of my life that the whole time I was there, and I did you know did some time in the West Bank. I did some time in in Lebanon. Um, I was in and out of bus in and out of bus stations, you know, back and forth to the kibbutz where I lived. That thank God I was never involved in anything. I mean, so, you can look at it, back at it now as sort of yeah. like a, an older man, but at the time, you know, it was just sort of your life, right? You don't, you don't right. walk all around looking around your shoulder. I mean, what, you know, what, no, how, at the how does time, that and, and, you? and the amazing thing about is, the Israeli society is that as you walk around as a soldier there, everybody takes care of you because everybody's got a kid or a brother or a sister that's going through what you're going. So when they see a soldier coming, they'll pick you up. They'll give you, a, you know, you can bum a cigarette from anyone. You can, they'll... You know, they'll give you a, a sandwich if you're waiting at the bus stop and the guys, you know, maybe, maybe there's a guy that's got like a little um, food stand there and he sees you've been waiting there for an hour. He'll come out with a Coke or something like that. That's the amazing part about being a soldier in Israel, that everybody was a soldier and everybody knows a soldier and everybody's little kids are going to be soldiers. So they take care of the soldiers there and they look after them. Speaking of little kids, because you, you have three kids. You know, yeah. if one of them had said to you or says to you, you know, Dad, I'm, I'm joining any army, U.S., Israeli, you know, how, 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 would you, how would you react to that? I wouldn't stand in their way. You let, them, you let them go. Yeah. I would make sure they understood what they were doing and that they understood the, danger, the dangers there and, and the pitfalls, but I wouldn't stand in their way. The benefits of military service, I think, I think every kid in the... In the in the country could could benefit from. What about your wife? What do you think she would say? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, although she does encourage some of our kids to take certain paths in the army. Oh, really? Yeah. But what's like, paths? Uh, like she thinks that if one of our kids became a, a Krav Maga um, trainer, okay, in the army, that, that that's a good uh, that's a good cause. That's a noble and, cause, and I think so too, but. What she doesn't understand is the path that you need to take to get there, and you have you to know, go and you sleep first, on the floor you, and you freeze first, your ass off. Well, and you also might be in get yourself into situations where you might actually have to use Krav Maga in a real, in a real life or death situation. Sure. And that's. Do you know Krav Maga? Did they teach that to you? And we learned. How come you never you never showed me any of those moves? I, I'm a trained killer. I could kill you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Anyway, how are we doing on time? On time, there, Tom. Uh, Krav, Krav, Krav Maga is just a just a way to defend yourself. Yeah, it's no like matter pull what. their hair, grab their balls, it's like do whatever it takes. Whatever it I takes. mean, Krav Maga is not necessarily self defense; it's self offense. So it's you, it's either you're gonna die or he's gonna die. So so when they say no holds kill. barred, it's really the yeah. no holds barred. So we, we, I mean, we would train with our rifles. I mean, strikes, blows. I mean, did you ever use? Any of those moves on any no, any no. the enemy? Thank God, no. How about that? So, but, but you were lucky, like you said, you didn't. You really, really see any sort of combat, as you know. I think of it as sort of like hand to hand or you know shooting somebody. Yeah, I saw it from a distance. I was never up close. Do you, do you think because of who you were as an American joining or South African at the time joining the the, the army that they didn't put you sort of on the front lines? Was there any sort of special favoritism? No, I mean I was I was in with um, Israelis. I went through basic training in the Nachal Brigade, which is one of which was one of the four infantry brigades at the time. Um, I think there's one or two more now that they've added, but there was a there was a full-on infantry brigade. We we trained with heavy weapons. Um, we were on. We used to sit out in the in the field overnight in Lebanon. What in, field? Inside, in Lebanon. Yeah, in inside Lebanon. Um, we we did patrols into towns. Um, we stood at the border gates. We patrolled the border, and did you ever see any 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 bad stuff go down? I saw miss. I saw from a distance. Yeah, we mentioned that, but one, you know one, what I'm talking no, about. So nothing, more, nothing up close. More gruesome. Nothing up close. I mean, again, I was lucky. And when we were in the West Bank, it was very very quiet to the point that when we were done doing patrol, we could go and sit in the Arab restaurants there and. Hang on, have, have a drink. Eat a falafel, smoke cigarettes, yeah. Smoke cigarettes? Yeah. Okay. You know, everyone's going to hear that now. 
I was a soldier. I was a, I was a fighter in the army. <laughs> how many? What do you think? What do you think goes on? How many years um, do you serve in the IDF? I did just over a year and a half. I did what they call a uh, um, infantry or a combat course, which and is the first. Uh, I think it's eighteen months. And then when it's over, you know, they say, you know, leave you did a great job. You know, we want you to come back and and climb the ranks, or is it? I mean, you know, I had the opportunity to do it. The thing, the the big thing there which is why I really didn't stay on, was we weren't yet American citizens, uh, which that was important to my parents, obviously, sure. that we become Americans. You don't become an American citizen by living outside of the country, and and you don't become an American citizen by joining another con country's army I mean, and, and becoming a career soldier. So, um, so that was a big factor. And you had um, conversations with your parents about that, where they said, yeah, "Greg, you yeah, know, you're, you can you're, go do it. Come, come home. You're putting us all in jeopardy by joining this right. foreign nation's army. Right? Not, not necessarily that us all, but you will be in jeopardy." And I remember when I came back, and I was literally came back on the 180th day. You could go out of the country for 180 days, six months. When I came back in, in it was literally on the 180th day. The woman stamped my passport, and she wrote, "180 days." I mean, you on left that. it to the last minute. Yeah. Jesus. I mean, your parents must have been freaking out. Then. Right. Jesus. And so there was a few times I came back, and I had to tell my commanders, hey, listen, I need to go back to the U.S. Um, I think one time I came back was for candies or bar mitzvah. mitzvah. So that was an excuse. And then I came back uh, um, for Dave Donnerberg's wedding, which was actually in South Africa, but I flew to South Africa via the United States. Oh. So I touched the, the long way around. I touched down here, went to the South Africa, and then then back to Israel. So you come back to the states now. It's what year is this? When you're when you're back in America? Uh, Ninety nine. Do you remember being sworn in as an American? Yeah. How old were you? Maybe 25, 26, 27. And what was that process? They take you down to like the federal center. You to you got to go the Bible. Bible. That, that was an interesting process because. Um, I remember once I lost my green card. I lost my wallet, which my green card was in my wallet. I had to go down to the um, immigration building at uh, 10, South, 10 West Jackson or something like that, downtown. And so I called. I said, I've lost my green card. They said, okay, come down and we're, you know, we open at 8. So I showed up at 8. There was a line around the corner. This is in March, by the way, in Chicago. There was a line around the corner. And that was really like the first time you, you get a sense of, which immigrants, right? Because there were people waiting there for hours and hours and hours with little kids. Sure. And I was going to make a joke. I was going to make a joke just now. Which was worse, like sleeping on the on the floor, dealing with uh, the bureaucracy, no, nothing, of getting nothing. Green nothing was worse than anything I did in the army. Fair enough. That's really. I mean, you do that, you can do anything. Any. Well, I'm not doing that, but. Right. I mean, one of the things I always promised myself, standing guard in the freezing cold, was I'll never be cold again. And so I hate the cold. But I have been cold, but not... But not that cold. Not that cold. I mean, to me, that's like... That sounds like the absolute worst. Yeah. But anyway, forget your green so card. I've, so I ended, so ended up having to go back, and then I ended up... You've you got to get there early. I got there at 6 in the morning, something like that. Waited for two hours. They let you in. They talk to you like complete dogs. Um, you, you get up into this room, into this waiting room, and even up there, you're just waiting around, and the you know, the... People's kids are running around like little kids do. That you you're waiting for hours and hours and hours. The kids are bored, and they're yelling at these people. We will throw you out of here, and you'll have to come back tomorrow. And it's like, how do you talk to people like that? It is really, really um, dehuman, dehumanizing. And see, that's what's am amazing. About it you. was upsetting. That's it was what's upsetting. amazing about you, Greg, because you've been you've had some experiences, South Africa, apartheid, all this bad stuff, going joining the Israeli army, and but yet you still have like sort of this respect for how, how can people treat each other like that yeah. or talk to each other like right. that. It's, a very, it's incredible. Have you ever explored that and thought well, about that Well, listen, I mean, deeper? you don't get anywhere. I, it's one thing I always tell my kids. I said, there's no one better than you in life, but you're not better than anybody. And that's important because wherever you go in the world, I don't care who you're talking to, there could be the, the president, the, the queen of England. You know, at the end of the day, they're, they're people too. And it doesn't matter how much money they have or what they've done in the world, they're not better than you. But on the other hand, you're not better than anybody else. And you've got to keep that in perspective to, 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 be any, to be anybody in this world. If you're going to be civil, 
That's how you're going to be civil. You are my like, favorite lady boy. I mean, doesn't that, matter what color you are. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Nothing matters if you can't be civil. You're, you're and right. You, and you've got to give someone respect. You don't, you've never walked a mile in someone else's shoes. You don't know what they go through. So until, you know, until you. It, you and it's amazing like coming that. from you. Again, you've had those life experiences. You've seen, you know, some pretty incredible stuff that, to, to have a worldview like that. To me, right. it's very honorable. Um, I'm proud to be your brother-in-law at this moment, Greg. I'm feeling very, you know, very co Thank you. connected to you at this point. Well, listen, you've never, you've been around a long time. You've never. Well, listen, asked. I have to compete with your brothers, you know, and it's not like they, you know, they, they're all got big voices. All right. So this was my opportunity where I can, you know, keep them, keep, keep them away and, and get right. you one-on-one. -on -one. So thank you for that. Um, all right. So do you, they give you your green card. You don't have to come back the next yeah, day, Yeah, I right? got my green card. But I, then to get, actually get your citizenship, you have to go and get a... Um, you go. You have to go and do a written test. Well, I think it was a multiple choice test, but it's 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 oral. So there's there's an officer, an immigration officer, and these people are not nice. They're not. They don't want you in the country. It seems they're not inviting. They're not like. Uh, you have to study for this test. You got to study. I think they give you a hundred questions. That many. And they ask you ten, and you have to get six right, and I think almost flunked. And by the way, almost flunked because. And a day or two before, I was talking with my buddy, Rob Edelman, who's an attorney, who gave me some wrong answers. Edels, I still hold it against you. Well, listen, just because you're an attorney but doesn't I, mean you know anything about it. the Constitution. Yeah, Trust right. me. <laughs> All right, please. But yeah, it's about, it's about U.S. general knowledge, about Constitution, you know, who wrote the Star Spangled Banner, that, that kind of stuff. Frank Lloyd um, Wright. I, I don't think that's correct. <laughs> Not um, correct. Maybe I'll Google that one. Yeah, but it's also who said this, you know, who said give me liberty, give me death, that kind of, those are the kind of questions they're asking. It's not necessarily all about the Constitution, but you pass. And do, you guys, then, do you have to study with your parents? I mean, do you guys have a class? How does that work? No, they get, there's a booklet. It's kind of like the driver, driver test. Um, okay. At least that's what I remember. And when you pass, they say, fine, you pass. They do a few rubber stamps. And then you get called in to get sworn in, and that was the coolest thing. There was an old judge in Chicago called, I think, Judge Abraham Lincoln. Maybe you know. And just because you're a lawyer, does you know every judge in, in Chicago as well? Abraham he, Lincoln. He was. Come I on, think I, what, did I you think really pass the test? <laughs> he's, he's, you know, you shot he, the temple. His name so, was Abraham right. Lincoln. His name was Abraham Lincoln, and somehow um, he was very he, he was very old by the time I got him. And basically, what they'd given him was the job of swearing in immigrants. And so we went into, you go into, the, into a courtroom and there must have been about 100, 150 people there, um, all immigrants, and you, you basically say the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, again, I was in my 20s, uh, 20, maybe 26, 27 years old. And uh, you, you Pledge of Allegiance and, you know, that was a cool experience. Yeah, you have to have it memorized by then. Um, I don't think so, but I went through, I went through high school here in the, in the nineties. Right. So we used to actually say the pledge. And did you have to say something like that in South Africa? Did you have a pledge no. like a, no. you, you know, you didn't. Mm -mm. but coming to America, then that must've been sort of a culture shocker. Yeah. It was just something we did. I mean, this is what we do. You never so. had, you know, thought about it any deeper than that. No. Interesting. I always appreciate the pledge. I'm very proud to be an American now. Listen, you don't very, very you don't even start politics no. now because no one, no one's going to no, no, listen it's, about it's that. It's got, it's got nothing to do with that. It's, got, it's got to do with the fact that, um, you know, I don't want to get into politics, but I really think that I really think that the the, you know, the, the society constraints here, the constitution, no, no matter what the history, history is history. There's, there's no race on earth. There's no people on earth that haven't been at some point in their in their existence face down in the dirt with someone's you know foot on their on their back keeping them down and everybody shares that history so we all need to we all need to recognize that um what i think what the what Amer what america represents is exactly how you how you get away from that 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 same respect that you give each other that we're all equal right that's what we've got to start recognizing. And that's actually codified here. I don't know if there's many countries in the world that actually have that written in there. That all men are equal. That all men are equal. 
I don't think so. I don't think so. No. I think in South Africa they finally have a constitution. Finally, I mean it's a little bit late um, to the party, but. but they were, but they were always a, a separate but equal. Right, as we're going to say. Um, I think there's a lot of places where the a document like that just doesn't even exist. Um, there's there's places even in like in the UK where they have the they have the royals. Yeah, they've got they recognize them as they're not supreme leaders or but the, I mean there's definitely a a benefit to being a royal. To being born, to being born royal. That's so, right. Did you watch that documentary with uh, Meghan I, and, no, and Harry? I refuse. Yeah, don't waste your time. It's about as boring as this, this podcast. <laughs> I refuse. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so you become an American. You say the pledge, and it's you know, God bless America, yeah. right? And you get your passport, and that you know, it's interesting though, because growing up as a South African, we had this passport we couldn't go to. We couldn't go places. You couldn't come to America. We could, you could come to America, but you couldn't go to. I couldn't go to Mexico. I couldn't. I couldn't I'm sure go. you were. You were so eager to get to Mexico the second you. you oh, whatever. American. Whatever. There were places we couldn't go. I couldn't go anywhere in Africa with my South African passport. Really? Yeah. Now, if I had a South African passport, I could go to Iran. I could go to Cuba. Like no problem. Be welcome with open arms. Beautiful places to visit. <laughs> Insane. Afghanistan. With what an American you, passport, I couldn't. I couldn't go there. So what are, you, what are you waiting for? There's a nice place in Abbottabad. I'm sure it's beautiful I'm this sure. time of year. Yeah, I'm sure. Anyway. I heard there's a vacancy. <laughs> right? <laughs> I think Abbottabad's in Pakistan, by the way. Yeah, that's Showing. what I'm saying. There's a vacancy there. <laughs> a plot of land. Anyway, because now we've sort of gone a little bit sideways here, but right. I'll bring, I'm going to bring it back in. So after Is it time Kyle, for a restroom break? Oh, we can take a commercial break. How are we doing on time there, Tom? Tom's very strict about the time here. He says, after an hour, he pulls the plug. He says, get out of here. Oh, come on. How long have we been talking for? Because it's like an, I'm getting tired. Can't, We're over an hour. Over See? An hour an hour. I'm telling you, these leave boys just. I mean, we barely got through half of the Right. So we're going to have to come back. We're almost there. All right. Well, listen. Why don't we wrap it up and we can, we can come back. We're going to wrap it up. We come back. I don't, you know, we'll see how this performs. We People do, want you to come back. We can do part two. We can do part two. So, Greg, I want to thank you then. We're going to wrap it up. This is how I'm going to bring you. it on home. Okay. Really, your story is really interesting. And I, I'm not doing shtick. I, you know, it's, it is fascinating as such a young guy to have that perspective on yourself say i'm going to go do this because i think a lot of americans especially myself i you know i don't know if I, and maybe i'm i'm just lying to myself i said i could never have done something like that so i'm, I'm you know i'm impressed with you and it's very very proud to be your brother-in-law at this thank moment you. thank you um so thank you for your time um any any parting words because i think we've said it all probably said too much well parting words just be good be good Come on, be good to each other listen to the dead listen to bob marley uh, stay off the drugs. I'm off drugs these days. Really? <laughs> yeah. What, which drugs which were you nice. on? That that implies you were on drugs before. All, all the hard all stuff. All right, well, listen, you'll come back no. for part two to get into that, right? <laughs> no, Your poor mother. You can make a joke like that. <laughs> I've yeah. always been a good, always been a good boy. Um, come on, Tom's like enough no par- already. No parting words, yeah. No, enough, enough already. <laughs> I just, I'd like to just make a plug if I, if I can. Um, I'm in a band these days. I you know, had that in my notes. We you had it in your that. notes. We never got even close to it. But uh, February 11th at 28 Mile Distillery. Where's that located? Uh, that's in Highwood, Illinois. Uh, my band, the Night Owls, I play the uh, 12-string acoustic, do some singing. You can hear I've got a great voice or not. No, I think you'd be embarrassed. And, um, yeah, it should be an embarrassing time for me, but there's, uh, it's a great spot. Don't say that because no, nobody cares. We're all proud of you. We're going to go see your band. We'll support you. Yeah, support me. Um, I, you actually, got, you got I think I'd just get a free pizza out of the whole game. Is there, is there an Instagram handle we can follow that band? What's it called, the Night Owls? Uh, Night Owls. Oh. Night, Night Owls rock music. We don't post anything. We don't uh, bombard any spam or anything like that. But yeah, Night Owls rock music. One day we'll be famous. Okay. On Instagram. Best of luck with that. Thanks, brother. All right, Tom. Pull the plug. It's enough. <laughs>